to Afraid Not Podcast with Jill McCormick and Robin Wall. We believe that our stories matter and make us who we are. Every other week, we invite guests to join us and share their stories. Even though our stories have nots, we are not afraid. Our stories are afraid. They are not perfect. We believe the truth of our mess makes us stronger. We hope that God uses these stories to encourage and strengthen your faith as you trust in Him. Our theme verse is Colossians 1, 17, which says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, even our frayed knots. podcast listeners. I'm Jill McCormick. And I'm Robin Wall. And this is Afraid Not Podcast. You are listening to episode number 96. This is our third episode in this summer series for 2022. And we are looking at Afraid Not Stories from the Bible. We're going to be talking about a woman in the Old Testament today, which is Hannah. And then we'll flip over to the New Testament and talk about Scarlet. Which you may be thinking, who is Scarlet? Maybe they're thinking, did I miss it? Is there Scarlet? I, I don't remember in the Bible? Scarlet. <laughs> who is that? We'll explain later. Yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> so we're going to begin today with looking at a story that's found in 1 Samuel. If you want to find that in your Bible, you can find the story 1 Samuel 1 through 2 11, and then a little touch into chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, the story of Hannah. And I wish we could have Hannah's actual person, you know, present here with us to talk with her, interview her. But we do have her story in the Bible. And she's one of the very special women who actually gets a name in the Bible. Imagine that, Jill. Because in this day and age, so little regard was given to women that most of the women in the Bible are not even named. So the fact that we know Hannah's name makes it even more significant. And we learn so much about her relationship with God through this story. And honestly, we can see her story connects with us. Her story is part of what all of us have experienced in some way or another, whether it's the exact situation and the longing of her heart matches yours, or if it's a similar situation where you've just been in a time of praying and waiting and praying and waiting and wondering what the Lord's plan is. So Hannah is for all of us. So let's start by just glancing at what we see in 1 Samuel. We notice that we hear about the the husband first. His name was Elkanah. And there's a list of his genealogy of where he was coming from. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. And it's pretty important. We shouldn't really just glance over those words. It's really cool that we can see the path in the Bible of the lineage. We have a a documented line of, we can tell in those lists of genealogy, which family he was from and which tribe he came from. It's pretty cool to know that. So he was living very close to the southern part of Israel. And I don't know if you know this, listeners, but after King Solomon's son, Rehoboam took over, it was a bad time in Israel's history, and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split away from each other in a kind of like a biblical civil war, and the northern kingdom was Israel, and the southern kingdom was Judah. So 
Elkanah and his family lived in the southern part of Israel, pretty close to where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. In the special, they had a, a place for it in Shiloh. And this is before King David would come along um, many generations later, several generations later, and King David would be the one to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So this is the time where Shiloh is where everybody would come for very special times to sacrifice, to thank the Lord, to praise Him, to gather at special feasts, all of those special feasts through this calendar year like Passover and the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booths and all of those feasts that are in the from the Jewish history when they left um, Egypt. So Elkanah he married a woman named Hannah first. We think probably that she was his first wife because her name's listed first. But then after years of not having any children, he probably, in order to have his name go on and to have a family, he married again. And unfortunately, he chose a very not nice person. What do we think of his, his wife, Jill Panina? Hmm. She's not great. No. What was she like? Um, not the kind of sister wife you would want to live with. <laughs> you have to be in a sister wife. <laughs> you have to be in a sister wife situation. She's not the one you would pick. No, in fact, she's so mean to Hannah. The Lord blessed Penina with several kids. In fact, we don't know the exact number, but she had many sons and daughters. We can see that um, there's some reference to sons and daughters of Penina. So she had multiple children, and she would... Instead of comforting Hannah and just letting Hannah be a part of the family anyway, she provoked Hannah. She made Hannah's life miserable, most especially when they would go to Shiloh. They would go for these special annual feasts, time to sacrifice, and the whole family would pack everything up, load up the donkeys, make the trip. They would worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. Kind of interesting, I found that in studying this, that calling God, the Lord of hosts, is the first time this is used in it's the, uh, the book of 1 Samuel. So earlier in the Bible, there are other names like Yahweh and the Lord, but calling him the Lord of hosts begins here. So exactly. explain that, Lord of hosts. What does so that mean exactly? What my commentary that I read said is that the Lord of hosts is a name referring to the all the angelic beings, the army of the Lord, the armies of the heavenly realm that God is over. So it's just a kind of a reference to how powerful God is, which I love in this story. Yeah. (laughs) So Elkanah was a righteous man. And we see in the story that Hannah was a righteous woman. She believed in God. She was not just going along for the trip. She believed in the Lord of hosts as well. And it says in 1 Samuel verse that Elkanah loved her more than he loved Penina, which, uh, again, sister-wife situation alert. (laughs) This is sounding a little familiar from last time when we talked about Leah and Rachel. I know, and it's really a bummer. So one thing I can conclude is God does not think that two wives or more is a wise plan. (laughs) I don't think it usually works out well. No, no. So Elkanah showed a lot of love and 
care for Hannah. It even says in the Bible that he gave a double portion to her on special sacrifice feast days, which is just an indication of him wanting her to know you are special to me, even though you have not born sons and daughters to me. He loved Hannah. He loved her. And then verse 5 says that her rival, meaning the other wife, Penina, would provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So interesting here, verse 6, do you see that? This was a purposeful part of God's plan in Hannah's life. He chose in his wisdom and his sovereignty, he closed her womb. Now this was not because Hannah wanted that to happen. It was not because Elkanah wanted that to happen. This just is an example to me of the fact that sometimes in our life, we're going to have a brick wall that we do not understand. And we don't don't want it there. We wish it was gone. We don't understand why. And just like Hannah, we can just take our cares to the Lord. So any thoughts on that, Jill, before we move on? Like the fact that it says the Lord had closed her womb. That seems pretty mean. Why? Yeah, it does. And until we figure out the end of the story where we can see and understand what happened, when you're just in the midst of it, I'm sure she was devastated and thought, what did I do? Why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. Why is my womb closed? Why is her womb open? And she's not a great person. Why does she keep having children mm-hmm. and I can't? So I, I imagine she was dealing with a lot of confusion, a lot of depression, hopelessness. All those things. So listeners that are feeling like, okay, I've been there, keep listening. This is a great example of how God used a very hard situation for His glory. This says in verse 7 that it went on year by year. And the fact that we can see the repeated word year by year, this is say it's showing us this is a long time. This is really hard. This is not just something that is happening for one short season. It's been years enough time for Penina to have multiple sons and daughters. So she's been barren this whole time, and she's been so sad. And one particular feast where this verse picks up, we're at verse number 7 in First Samuel 1. The family had done their sacrifice. They'd had their feast time. They'd already shared their meal together, eating and drinking together. And Hannah goes alone into the tent of worship. She is weeping and she is, she is just heartbroken. Elkanah, her husband, sees her and he says, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? I want to pause for a second on this. This is really, really special. What he could have said to her is, you know, I just might as well write you a certificate of divorce. You have not only burned the bread, but you haven't begun. Right, because we learned before yeah. they could divorce for whatever reason for whatever they wanted. Reason he could have given her no love, no consideration, and really could have written her off. No, we see the opposite. We see that Elkanah loved Hannah. It's shown by the fact that he would give her those double portions, and the fact that his comment to her is saying kind of like reading between the lines. He loves her even though there's no heir. She's not providing a son. She's not having any children. He loves her anyway. This is like, I mean, for the time and the context we're in, I think this is a pretty extraordinary 
marriage relationship. This is like a romance movie yes. in that time. Yes. Like that you want to see of him just embracing her and loving her, even though she wasn't providing at that time in the culture what was thought to be what they were there for. Exactly. And Panina might have been provoking Hannah and rude to her and mm-hmm. irritating her so much because she was jealous of, of the course. love. I mean, she's giving him these airs and then she's seeing this other person get double portions and be doted on by their husband. And yeah. she, he's not really that into Panina, it doesn't appear. Right. So at verse 9, we see that Hannah got up by herself. She went into the temple of the Lord and she was deeply distressed And what did she do in her deep distress? She prayed. She went into the temple. She prayed to the Lord. And she was weeping bitterly when this happened. And she vowed a vow and said, Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. When she comments about in this prayer that she's saying no razor shall touch his head, this is a Levitical vow. This is like, um, for instance, we can see later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul took a vow like this for a time, and he did not cut his hair or shave for a long time. Um, John the Baptist, Baptist. yeah. John the Baptist never had a razor touch his head, according to the word of the angel of the Lord saying to Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, you will, or actually, the angel talked to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and instructed, No razor shall be on his head all the days of his life. So, the vow that Hannah is saying in this prayer, she is she's obviously a woman who has studied the word of God, she knows about the she calls him the Lord of hosts, she is in a personal worship relationship, worshiping him. She calls herself the servant, and she is submitting to him and praying earnestly to him. And she, with all her heart, she sincerely means it. If you'll give me a child, I'll give him back to you. Please remember me. Now, while this is all happening, Eli, the priest, is nearby. And part of his daily chores and, you know, taking care of the temple was to be available to the people who came for offerings and sacrifices. But he was also there to talk to people and he saw her and he did not have a good opinion of her. (laughs) (laughs) As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Okay. I don't know if any of you have can relate to this, but I can. Sometimes when I'm praying, I kind of almost just feel like it's a whisper. Or sometimes if I can't even get words to come out, I just am, you know, in a time of distress, the the prayers that I might be thinking and, and feeling are just weeping, you know. Mm-hmm. And she's she is moving her lips with the words of her heart, but there's no sound. So what does Eli think, Jill? <laughs> and she's probably crying, and she's lifting her hands, and she's doing all kinds of things. 
So Eli sees her and he thinks, this woman is intoxicated. Why is she in the temple acting like this? Yeah, and he's really like, oh boy, a drunk woman. What am I going to do with her? (laughs) So he goes over to her thinking he's going to kind of shoo her out and give her a little rebuke. He says, oh, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away. And Hannah said, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I'm going to pause on that that phrase, pouring out my soul before the Lord. I want to remind you right now today, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, you can pour out your soul before the Lord, just like Hannah. Verse 16 says, She said to Eli, Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So Eli blessed her. Eli heard her, and as a, a priest, he was in a, a compassionate response to her. He said, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. To me, this is a really compassionate response. I love this response that Eli says to her, and it changed everything for her. The fact that she poured out her soul in prayer to the Lord, the fact that she left it all there on her knees. She just left it. And after this, she was able to just find peace. She went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So I think that here we find the peace that passes understanding. Like, she didn't know what was going to happen yet. She didn't know if the Lord would answer her prayer with a yes. She didn't know if it was going to be another long years of waiting or if it was going to be a no. But the fact that she went to him and poured it all out changed everything for her. She went her way. She ate. Her face was no longer sad. She was just finding that peace that passes understanding, which I feel like when when we have stopped trying to fix it all on our own and we release, we lay things down before the Lord and we just pray and say, Lord, this is, I can't do a thing about this. It's all in your hands. You're in control. Mm-hmm. We realize we really can't control it. Hannah couldn't control this. So the cool thing that happens next in this story is that Elkanah and Hannah went back home and the Lord granted Hannah's prayer. It says in verse 20, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the name Samuel is, it means name of God or possibly offspring of God. Samuel bore the name of God who gave him to Hannah. Such a beautiful picture. And Hannah kept her promise. Hannah nursed Samuel and she did not return to the temple until she had weaned him. We don't really know how long that was. It could have been two years. It could have been three years. We don't really know how long that process was for the context of the day, how long they would nurse their babies. But she, when she had weaned him, the next time they had the festival, she brought Samuel. And I just have to, oh my goodness, my heart is just beating so fast for her in this event, in this moment, just imagining 
how much she loves him mm-hmm. and that she's really going to follow through. She's giving him to the Lord, which is going to look like she's letting him be raised in the temple by Eli. Yeah. <laughs> like It's like giving him up for adoption. Yes. Kind of. Like she's yes. not going to raise him. And she's surrendering this child that she loves so much, which is unbelievably amazing and huge. And she says in verse 27, a precious verse. I bet a lot of you have this on your nursery walls in your home. It says in verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So this is a beautiful example. She prayed. God answered her prayer. And then she responded with yielding and obeying the Lord, which is also a huge thing to recognize. And she had a prayer of thanksgiving and rejoicing that is listed in chapter 2. She is praising God, exulting in the Lord. And she says in chapter 2, verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She knows Him. She prayed in faith. She prayed in praise and gratitude. And then guess what happened? You see, in the end of chapter 2, verse 21, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So this is just an amazing blessing. After all of those years of being so sad, God blessed her with Samuel and then five more children. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And every year, or maybe even more than once a year, every time it was feast time, every time when their family would go to Shiloh to make offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, she would see Samuel. She would bring him special little tunics that she had made for him, and she would get to have connections with him. So I'm sure Samuel knew who his mother and father were and talked to them at those special times when they would visit. But he knew, even from his earliest memories, he knew that he was a special child that God had blessed his parents with and that his life was to be given to the Lord. So even from his very first memories, he was able to honor the Lord and just be used by God. So what an amazing story from the Old Testament. Hannah has a, a... Awesome example for us. If she was here, I would love to say, Hannah, thank you for your example. Thank you for just faithfully praying and being somebody who just kept your faith. And I think that when we saw that she she went away from the temple that day in peace, it just also shows me we don't know what the answer is going to be. And dear listener, if you are one of the many people who is struggling with infertility, our hearts go out to you Mm -hmm. with such compassion, and we love you, and we're so sorry that you're walking the road you're walking. We certainly don't know the answers. We don't know if your answer is going to be a story like Hannah's, or if your story is going to be one where God uses all kinds of amazing people coming into your path that you are going to be used in ways you have no idea. But we do know God loves you, no matter what. And I think it's important to also notice that God was the one that closed Hannah's womb. 
He was the one that opened her womb. So if God causes the issue, he's the one that will fix the issue. Let's say that again, Jill. If God causes the issue, he fix, he'll, he'll be the one to fix the issue. Yes. So, and it sounds kind of harsh that he caused the issue, but if Hannah had not had this whole thing happen and had just been able to have children like Panina did, we don't know um, what those children, she probably wouldn't have dedicated one to the Lord and it wouldn't have become Samuel and he wouldn't have become this great priest. So um, I just think that's important. We don't understand the whole story and we only see things backwards after they've happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And something cool to know about Samuel is that Samuel grows up to become an amazing man of God, a priest who serves faithfully for decades. And God uses Samuel to anoint the first king of Israel, Saul. And then God instructs Samuel when he when Saul has sadly chosen poorly and left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can read Saul's story. It's, it's pretty sad. But Samuel's the one who went to anoint David who became King David. So Samuel was a great man of God. God had a plan and a purpose, even though it was so hard for Hannah to see it and why she had to have years of sadness and barrenness. She didn't understand at the time. But God used the exact storyline, the right timing, His perfect purpose and plan to make this story come about. So we're going to close the Old Testament chapter now. And let's take a little trip over to interview someone in the New Testament. So, Jill, who is up? Tell us about this mysterious Scarlet. Okay, so we're going to talk about Scarlet. Scarlet is actually the woman that was caught in adultery. We just decided we wanted to give her a name. Mm -hmm. And if you know the Scarlet Letter, we decided we're going to call her Scarlet, which that's actually Hester, but we're going to call her Scarlet. <laughs> so, because there's a lot of similarities, honestly, with there the story, are the Scarlet yes. Letter. Okay, so let me just talk about this. This is found in John chapter seven, verse fifty-three, the very end of the chapter, going into verse eleven of chapter eight. Now, before I read this, something we need to talk about is this story is not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It is only found in John. Also, when you look at it in John, at the very end of chapter 7, it says, The earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have these verses in them. Why do you think that is? Well, that's actually really interesting. We know that the four writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote on their own. They didn't like have like a writing right. club at a coffee they shop. They came out at different times. Right. So they each wrote in their own remembrance and in their own style of how they would have told a story. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't choose to use this exact story. John did. I'm so glad he did. And as for as far as why some of the manuscripts don't have it and some do... Some scribes may have added it in as they copied the Gospels. And if we look at it as a wisdom example of how Jesus' character shows compassion, we can still, whether or not we feel like this is um, 
scripture or whether we feel like it's wisdom literature, it's in the Bible. So I think we can see the character of Jesus and learn from it, whether it was in the earliest manuscripts or whether it was not. What do you think? Yeah, and I think it's a great example of how Jesus interacted with women. Mm -hmm. We'll see. And I don't know if because of some of the things that happen with the Pharisees, if that's why it wasn't included in other manuscripts, I'm not sure. But I do believe that this happened, and I do believe that it shows us how Jesus interacts with people. And you know, on that topic, there are so many things that we don't know that Jesus did. They couldn't have written them all down. Exactly. Because Jesus was a walking, talking miracle. Mm -hmm. Everything he did and the words he said and the interactions he had with people were life-changing and miraculous, and he healed more people than they could have ever written down. Um, One of the Gospels ends with, if everything was written down that Jesus did, I suppose all the world would not have enough books to contain them. Mm -hmm. So we see, this is just an example of one of the many ways Jesus showed love. So, okay, tell us more about... Okay, so let me tell you the story. Yeah. So here's the verse, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Okay, let me stop right there for a second. So first of all, this is on the eighth day of a festival. There were three times a year that there were festivals and feasts that the people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate and to have a festival. This is on the eighth, they were seven-day festivals, and this was the eighth day, and the rabbis happened to be on the steps teaching. They were still teaching the people, kind of just, you know, giving them some words of wisdom. And And so this is like on the temple steps? On the temple steps, yes. So they bring this woman in who's most likely naked. So she's humiliated. Humiliated. They found her, they've caught her, they've brought her before Jesus, there's no man with her. We know that it takes two to tango. So, Like, uh, why would they not bring the man to? Well, because they were trying to trick Jesus. We'll get into that. Okay. So the teachers... So unfair. <laughs> the teachers of the law brought, her, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you have to say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Hmm. Because, here's the thing, in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So, both of them should have been there if they're going by the law. There's no man there. So, this was all a way to try and trap Jesus to see what he was going to do. Are you going to stone this woman? Are you going to allow us to stone this woman? Well, then what kind of love is that? But if you don't, then you're not following the law. So either way, they thought, well, we've got him either way. Hmm. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When, he kept, when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So, what do you think that means that he was writing on the ground with his finger? I would love to know what he wrote. I would love to know that. 
uh, but you know, one of the things he may have been doing was just averting his eyes, not looking at this humiliated woman and looking down at the ground instead, right. kind of showing her that he was not going to participate in this gawking at the sinful scarlet woman. He did not look at her like that. And so so even though we don't know what he drew, I just think that he chose to not stare and make her more humiliated than she already was. Well, Jeremiah 17, 13 says, All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So some scholars theorize, possibly, he was, maybe he was writing their names in the dust. That would have been a kind of shameful thing. Maybe he was letting them know. Maybe he was writing scripture in the dust. Maybe he was writing Leviticus 20.10, like, where is the man? We don't have any idea what he was writing. But there's different theories of, was he writing their sins? Was he writing their names? Was he writing scripture? We don't know. But it was thought that writing with, with ink on the Sabbath was not allowed, but writing in dust was. So huh. it's the Sabbath. They're mm-hmm. not supposed to write with ink. So he's writing whatever it is in the dust. Um, also, rem- so knowing that this is on the eighth day of a major festival, everybody is there. Mm-hmm. So this woman, Scarlet, that we'll call her, yes, is humiliated, naked, by herself, in a crowd of all of the people are there. So they've just, they're just using her as a pawn. Shame. Humiliating her. Oh, the shame of it. It's so awful. And the fear she must have been feeling, too, because she doesn't know if she's getting ready to be stoned. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know if, you know, what's going to happen. And also, let's just remember the context of the day that a man is the authority in the culture, in the context, you know, she it's it's unlikely that she was instigating some sort of an adulterous affair it's more likely that she was either forced to have an adulterous interaction with this man or that she willingly went along when he instigated it it's less likely that she went after him because of the fact that women had the upper hand in society so the fact that men had the upper hand. Yeah, yeah. It's fact. I don't know if I said that wrong, but yes, men had the upper hand. The fact that they didn't even bring the adulterous man right. shows. I wonder if he was even in on it. Probably. That's what makes me think he was maybe in on it too, because they knew where to find her. Obviously, they. I mean, it's not like they're just. Right. They had to be in around. some they hidden knew tent where or something. They were. Yeah. They knew to take her and not the man. So I have a feeling this whole thing was probably a setup to try and trap Jesus. Um, so he stooped on the ground and wrote again. And at this, those who, and he, he said, who would he without sin be the first to throw a stone at her? Okay, right there. Whoa, say that again. That's like the mic drop. <laughs> Throw a stone. Any of you that don't have any sin in your life, you go, you go for it. You go right ahead. You pick up that stone. But who, who is going to throw the first one? So then, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. This may have been the scariest point of it for her, because she's standing in front of a holy person who she knows does not have any sin. 
Mm-hmm. He's the only one that would be, from what he said, be able to throw a stone at her. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. Hmm. I love his compassion on her. And I love it that he brought this moment of where all these self-righteous guys were picking up rocks. They had the rocks in their hands. They were ready. They wanted to stone her. And that what Jesus got them with was, wait a second, didn't, haven't you sinned? Yeah. Haven't you sinned before? Yeah. Didn't you just tell a lie? Didn't you just uh, maybe cheat on your wife? Didn't you just, um, you know, gossip? Whatever. They all had sin because we all do. And I think they were kind of in that pretentious, but not I. I am, I'm the righteous one. But the oldest ones first recognized, (laughs) I have not lived a sinless life. No one has. I mean, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no sinless person except Jesus. We all have a chapter in our story that we don't read out loud. Ooh, (laughs) that's good. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and I I wanted to read in Isaiah 42.3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In his in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And I just think that's beautiful comparing with this story because she was a bruised reed. Mm-hmm. He was not going to break her. Mm-hmm. She was already a bruised reed. She was already humiliated. She was already in a bad situation. He wasn't going to add insult to injury for her. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote by Susanna Wesley of the definition of sin, and she says... Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the strength of authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you. However innocent it may be in itself, that thing is sin. Hmm. So whatever it is that is taking over what you know is the right thing to do for you, that thing is sin. Hmm. Um... And there's, when people, when you hear the word shalom, what do you think? What does that word make you think of? Peace. Peace. In Hebrew, it actually means the way things ought to be. Wholeness, harmony, flourishing, delight. Hmm. So he was bringing back shalom to her. And that's his purpose for all of us is to bring shalom, not just peace, which is what we think of, but it's really harmony and wholeness of how things should be. I just love that. I love imagining that at my most shamed moment or my most, you know, the the chapter that I wouldn't read out loud, like you said, that Jesus has compassion on me, just like he had compassion on this lady, that the love and forgiveness that he offers to this lady that was scarlet, as we called her. that He offers that love and forgiveness to every single one of us still. He just says to her, I do not condemn you. Go sin no more. I mean, I bet she was a loyal Christ follower from that moment on. That may have been the first time in her life someone showed her compassion and forgiveness. Yeah. 
And he didn't just say, you're forgiven, go about your business. He, but he did add, go and leave your life of sin. He's not saying, just go continue doing what you're doing. He does say, you need to leave what you're doing, mm-hmm. but go in peace, go in shalom. I'm bringing wholeness to you. So I just love that story. I do too. And I wish we could talk to her in person, but I have a feeling she is going to be in heaven. I believe she followed Jesus. I How believe, could you not right. after that interaction? Because you know what? What we really are marked as when we're Christ followers is life change. He makes a difference in our life. That's what I can't deny. I cannot deny the change He has made in my heart, in my life, the life change Jesus has made. And there's no doubt that He's real because of the experiences I've had that are in my heart that I know and have experienced. So that's that gives me reason to think when we get to go to heaven someday, maybe we'll get to have a little sit down with Scarlett and say, did we get your story right, Scarlett? <laughs> <laughs> and tell us your real name. <laughs> Is Scarlett really your name? But And, you know, the Pharisees from this point on, even more so, were more bent on doing what they had to to get to, to Jesus because, or to try and trick him, try and trap him, because they were humiliated. He just humiliated them. Mm. I mean, within right. their own fault. But... They were used to being honored and praised. So for them to be put in their place, mm-hmm. that is not what they liked. Right. He just put them in their place. And they were humiliated and walked away in shame. So they're even more wanting to get Jesus trapped Mm -hmm. from this point on. Yeah. A side note that really doesn't have anything to do with this specifically, but which I just want to say is that I think the practice of stoning is so terrible. (laughs) It's so terrible to imagine a crowd of people literally picking up rocks and throwing them at somebody until that person dies. Yeah. Because you don't know if it, the first rock's going to do it, if it's the 30th rock, yeah. like how much pain And some people did be. live through stonings, like the Apostle Paul lived through being stoned. That's true. But, oh, just the terrible thought of it. And that's what they wanted to do to her. Mm-hmm. They were all ready. They were like white knuckles on those rocks, ready to throw them at this lady. And Jesus wouldn't let them. I love it. Yeah. So those are our stories for today. We had Hannah and Scarlett. That's right. Next time we join you, we will be talking about Ruth and Naomi. And we're camping out in the Old Testament for the entire episode next time because we're going to feel the story from both sides of that coin. How did Naomi perceive it? And what did God do in her heart? And how did Ruth perceive it? And what did God do in Ruth's heart? So the story of Naomi and Ruth will be in your earbuds in two weeks. And we hope that this series is blessing you and helping you trust the Lord and how much He loves you even more. Thanks for listening. Bye.